The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free for you, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, episode 199, part three. We're going to continue discussing Elizabeth Anderson's Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives, and probably more so her 1999 article, What is the Point of Equality? So I thought maybe we needed some time post-guest appearance to just get anything else off of our chest, maybe delve in a little more detail into this 1999 article because there's a lot of interesting distributive justice issues that we did not have time to get into directly with Liz. Who wants to start? It seems like, Wes, you had the least to say when we talked to her directly, which I was surprised by because you are usually very sensitive to these distributive justice issues when it comes to Rawlsian liberalism. That is, to have a view of equality like she has, for instance, where you say the state should affirm at least to a thin measure of what the good for people is which will involve not only having food and shelter and, you know, things that are pretty uncontroversial as part of human flourishing, but also autonomy in the workplace. And it really, you know, has the potential to get quite detailed in what she thinks government should be taking a stand on and not just saying, ah, oh, people have preferences. We can't really decide between them, which is the Rawlsian position. So I have to say, I strongly agree with what she writes and I think it's great. So just to frame it, of the bigger picture. Rawls, in a way, he's painting a sort of compromise between libertarians and utilitarians, between, say, a focus on concepts of equality and respect for the individual, and then for the notion that we should maximize well-being within a society. And he comes up with a certain kind of compromise, and critical to that compromise is his difference principle where he suggests that we can redistribute from the best off to the worst off up to the point where we don't improve anything for those who are worst off. So you don't get this just complete redistribution of goods within a society. It's limited, but the limit involves this point where you would really reducing inequality would not improve anything for those who are worse off. But that doesn't mean that there might not be considerable leveling under the Rawlsian point of view. Elizabeth Anderson, in, in a way, is also, I think, trying to paint this sort of compromise between libertarianism and utilitarianism. But I think she does it in a way that really does prioritize more Kantian notions of equality. And she does it in a way much more to my liking. She's relativizing distributive justice to procedural justice or to the idea of fairness. She's relativizing distributive justice to the question, how do we ensure our equality with each other as citizens in a society? And it's such a powerful way to answer some of these questions. I just think this paper, What's the Point of Equality? I cannot recommend it highly enough to listeners. It's really, really insightful. For me, what I liked most about the paper, and maybe we can talk a little bit about how the conversation went in this regard, is she goes very, very far to take the moralizing out of questions of how we talk about egalitarianism. In fact, if I picked a underpinning, it was sort of a silent principle of what she's trying to do is to remove that moralization about how people ought to be living their lives 
and coming up with a way to talk about human beings and the ways we ought to be generating opportunities for participation in society as well as potentials for human flourishing, the way we ought to treat one another that as much as possible avoids turning the screws on what people ought to do. Can I just clarify that? That, of course, if you're saying this is what we owe to each other, then that is a moral principle. But what you're pointing out specifically is that some of the papers that she's arguing against are saying, well, if someone acts foolishly, if someone acts with poor judgment or basely, then they forfeit basic dignity. They forfeit the right to be treated as a person. And if you try to actually legislate that and figure out who's been foolish, like that would just be a nightmare. So just put all that aside. It would be fundamentally immoral, right? Exactly. People deserve this minimum of respect and dignity. One really good example she uses is this example of someone who's disabled and the question of why we provide facilities for disabled people in a society it's not because, oh, poor, you know, she's against the whole pity view and especially against the state making these sort of determinations about what's pitiable and how people suffer and what kinds of suffering are more important and all that. But it's not because we pity them and think, oh, they're so much worse off in their lives and their well-being and they're flourishing and they have to get some kind of compensation of one kind or another it's because we actually owe them facilities. That is our obligation as a society, and we owe the disabled those facilities because their ability to move about in public and to have access to civil society, as she calls it, is a fundamental condition of their ability to act as equal citizens within a society. I think that's a really compelling argument, and that's the right way to think of it. That's the fulcrum of equality for her, is the ability to participate and flourish within the civil society. And I agree with that. I found that very, very compelling on this way. And Mark, you're right that the kind of moralizing I'm talking about is the moralizing regarding preferences of life choices. You're also right that it's formulated in terms of clarifying what kind of moral obligation do we have to one another and where does it sit? And for her, it sits in how we fashion a civil society robustly, correctly, or maybe morally. <laughs> I want to hear what Seth thought of this paper. So I think I'm in the same place as Wes and Dylan as far as this paper is extremely well written. It's very clear and it's very well argued. I mean, it's an example of what good philosophy is about, which is why the conversation we had with her was a bit of a letdown because we weren't able to kind of get her engaged with this. But to me, it gets encapsulated very early on in the following two sentences, which I think very succinctly summarize it. The proper negative aim of egalitarian justice is not to eliminate the impact of brute luck from human affairs, but to end oppression, which by definition is socially imposed. Its proper positive aim is not to ensure that everybody gets what they morally deserve, but to create a community in which people stand in relations of equality to others. And I think in the paper, she compellingly points out, like, I agree with Wes, I think you should go take a look at it. But the first couple of sections, she's talking about other folks who are arguing in favor of egalitarianism, Dworkin and, you know, the Rawlsian position, and how they've turned egalitarianism into essentially not equality of relations, but the redistribution of goods. So it's all these case examples where she points out, you know, 
well, what do we do with these corner case people, the lazy surfer or the rich person who's accustomed to champagne and these sorts of things? And she says, is this really what it's come down to? There's no wonder that the conservatives criticize egalitarianism because it's a joke. If what you're concerned about is whether Venice beach bums should get their fair share and what amount we take from others that doesn't impact their own enjoyment of life. She says it becomes kind of a calculus of absurdity. And she said, you know, the important thing when you're thinking about egalitarianism is thinking about people who basically are being oppressed or are being prevented from participating in society. Explicit or implicit oppression, I think. That's part of what the egalitarianism that she's formulating is. It may be egalitarianism in general, but her form is so attentive to not just the explicit oppression of people, but the implicit oppression of people in that they can't participate fully in civil society. Yeah, not having a certain basic minimal set of goods that are provided to them. But we should say what motivates these luck egalitarians, which I think is a kind of hyper utilitarianism, or maybe it's just a natural consequence of it. When you reflect on the fact that we're trying to maximize happiness, and you might even, as some of these philosophers that she describes have done, treat having expensive tastes, for instance, as a form of disability, and then why not accommodate it? If someone is truly going to be miserable if we don't satisfy their expensive taste for luxury, it's not their fault that they grew up that way and became accustomed to a certain lifestyle, let's say, or or were spoiled. It's That's not their fault. And so why aren't we as a society, you know, if we are really trying to maximize happiness and not just everyone's ability to pursue their own conception of the good, but their actual achievement of it, why not do that? Well, on the flip side, which I don't know if it makes it more or less absurd, is saying that if you can't walk, your stated need for a wheelchair is a preference of taste. Right. So what she's ultimately objecting to is this idea that we need to even worry about preferences and desires. Really, we're just worried about providing what people need in order to be equals to each other, what people need in order to avoid being oppressed and paupers, because, of course, if people just live in de facto servitude, then they're no longer equal citizens, essentially. And that's the way she turns it. It was rather than saying, making a conversation about what we each deserve is turning it to saying, what are we obligated to for each other? So instead of focusing on making everyone happy, we focus on ending oppression where it is in human arrangement. Yeah. So at the very end, she's sort of summarizing what this means. She says, this whole thing that she talks about, her form of egalitarianism, she calls it democratic equality. She says, democratic equality refocuses egalitarian theorizing in several ways. It conceives of justice as a matter of obligations that are not defined by the satisfaction of subjective preferences. This ensures that people's rights do not depend on arbitrary variations in individual tastes and that people may not claim rights without accepting corresponding obligations to others. So is there something that we've read specifically that makes an argument for considering only expressed preferences? Or is that just what she's reading into the dominant paradigm within economics, that you don't distinguish between needs and preferences? In other words, dominant economics has Rawlsian liberalism built into it, that the state does not decide that that preference is a need and this preference is merely a preference. It's just a matter of you look at people's behavior and how much they're willing to sacrifice 
for that thing. And if it's something they're willing to sacrifice a lot for, well, I guess it's important to them. (laughs) So we could come close to calling it a need, but it would just be too hard for the government to get in and draw a line and say, if you have this much preference, then it's something that has to be provided. Let's just let the market take care of it. Isn't letting the market take care of it exactly the opposite? I mean, you naturally end up talking about what people's needs and preferences are. There isn't a market of obligation. Well, I guess that's one thing to ask. Does obligation function in a market way? No. Yeah, I don't think it does. I think that the needs might, you might be able to argue that. So, for example, there are certain inalienable rights, and we can't contract away our freedom, for instance. We can't enter a contract for slavery. And an extreme libertarian might think we can, right? Might think that's something that could be a function of our preference in the market. Why not have the freedom to actually sell our freedom? But from the standpoint of someone who's interested in obligation and respect for people's dignity and humanity, that overrides preference. The preference of someone to sign away their freedom doesn't have any standing against this certain set of fundamental obligations that we have to each other. Maybe we should say more about that and maybe explore a little bit. The notion of inalienable right that you cannot enslave yourself. Why can't you? I could just read the quote. If you search for social contract theory, it's on page 314 toward the bottom. So the whole idea is trying to figure out what we would collectively will, right? That's Rawls's thought experiment. What if you don't know where you're going to be in society? What could you potentially will? She says, the determination of what can or must be collectively willed has been the traditional task of social contract theory. In liberal democratic versions of social contract theory, the fundamental aim of the state is to secure the liberty of its members. Since a democratic state is nothing more than citizens acting collectively, it follows that the fundamental obligation of citizens to one another is to secure the social conditions of everyone's freedom. Because libertarians also embrace this formula, it might be thought to lead to inegalitarian implications. Instead of repudiating this formula, democratic equality interprets it. It claims that the social condition of living a free life is that one stand in relations of equality to others. So you you could say that that equality has to be inalienable, that you shouldn't just because you freely enter into a contract and when arguing about the workplace, she uses the way marriage laws used to be, this coverture, where, yes, it's the woman's choice whether to get married or not, but once married, she becomes property. And that is exactly like what you were just describing, Dylan. Like, why can't I sell myself into servitude? Well, a certain amount of autonomy is inalienable. You know, if we recall Kant, this is very similar in some sense. Kant is going to say, look, if there is such a thing as morality, if we just assume that, then it has to be this sort of thing. It has to involve respect for autonomy. The whole concept of morality breaks down without that. And so you derive this idea that we cannot violate that in each other because the connection between morality and autonomy, right, is if we have no autonomy, then we can't do anything out of obligation or because it's moral. Morality requires choice and choice requires freedom. The whole idea that there's morality at all implies that we have to respect each other's autonomy. Right. She says right after that, equals are not subject to arbitrary violence or physical coercion by others. Choice unconstrained by arbitrary physical coercion is one of the fundamental conditions of freedom. Equals are not marginalized by others. They are therefore free to participate in politics and the major institutions of civil society. Equals are not dominated by others. They do not live at the mercy of each other's wills. You know, she's really been building a long time toward the current book. I was listening to a lecture back in 2013 where she was giving really quite a lot of the same ideas. 
Yeah, which is partly why it was a little disappointing not to get more into this part of it because it so plainly underpins her whole discussion of private government. Yeah, I see that I, the relation between the two works is very much like the two Michael Sandel pieces that we covered that, mm-hmm. you know, he had just released this very public facing, overtly political book. And that's what we talked to him about. But before we talked to him about that, we went back and read sort of his classic work. So we probably would have been well advised to read this and do an episode on it first, but we didn't know enough about her in advance to know that that would have been a good idea. And likewise, you know, who are these people that she's engaging or she quotes Amartya Sen? And his view of, what is it exactly his view of? (laughs) He proposed a better way of understanding freedom. And that's where she gets into functionings and capabilities, which is really great. Yeah, do you want to give a little of that, her version of Sen's theory? So it's just on page 316. Consider the states of being and doing that constitute a person's well-being. A person can be healthy, well-nourished, etc. She gives a long list. A person may also care about other states of being and doing that reflect her autonomous ends. She may want to be outgoing, to raise children, practice medicine, and so on. Call such states functionings. A person's capabilities consists of the set of functionings she can achieve given the personal, material, and social resources available to her. Capabilities measure not actually achieved functionings, but a person's freedom to achieve valued functionings. A person enjoys more freedom the greater the range of effectively accessible opportunities, We can understand the egalitarian aim to secure for everyone the social conditions of their freedom in terms of capabilities. So this is her turn away, right, from simply maximizing preference or happiness or whatever you want to call it, meeting particular people's desires, whatever they may be. What we're really trying to do is think about those goods, those sorts of resources that are actually necessary, this set of minimums that are actually the social conditions of freedom, and then we want to secure that for everyone. And then maybe they can go on to be a doctor because of that, or maybe they can satisfy certain luxurious tastes. But we don't just, the point of society is not to simply make sure that what everyone wants happens, you know, up front, or to compensate them for not being able to have it or something like that. How is this more subtle than the dominant ideology that we have. It's, we're not striving for actual equality. That would be too hard. That would involve the, the horrible, I've mentioned the Kurt Vonnegut story before. Yeah. Let's uh, dumb down all the smart people. Let's cut the tall poppies. We don't want that. What we want, equality of opportunity. Was talking about effectively accessible opportunities for functionings. How does that add to that story? Because for most people, equality of opportunity just means the dog-eat-dog meritocracy or the market. Opportunity, in that sense, just means, hey, look, there's a playing field out there, and as long as it's level in some sense, right, people aren't being unjustly discriminated against in their ability to compete on that playing field, then uh, that's equality of opportunity. For Anderson, the social conditions of our freedom to pursue our functionings, as she calls them, implies this package of minimal goods that we have to supply to people. So for instance, take a busboy. It's not the case that simply via the functionings of the market that we can leave someone who fulfills that role to be completely impoverished to the point where they are no longer equals. They no longer have access to some bare minimum set of functionings which would allow them to be equals within a society. And also, it's important that we recognize, you know, later on she'll get into this 
interconnected economy or the, the way our productivity is interconnected. So I want to concentrate on the busboy example because I've had the experience of saying to people who are otherwise extremely lefty, but just saying, look, a busboy should actually not make less money than me or deserve to, to live with family members or live in squalor doing that job. And the usual response is, well, I worked very hard to be where I am. I find it that kind of offensive and kind of a <laughs> a basic rejection of the kind of egalitarianism that Anderson proposes. She's not suggesting that we level everything to the point where busboys have to be making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but there has to be some minimum, and there also has to be an acknowledgement that they play a critical role in society. And she goes on about that with caretakers as well. People who make these great sacrifices in wages, whether they are people who take care of children at home, for instance, or other sorts of caring professions. But we can't do without those roles, and we can't do without busboys. And the functioning of the CEO is ultimately predicated on that sort of thing. The economy as a whole requires all these sorts of roles to be filled. So we're not simply consigning people to vague areas of the market. We're recognizing that the social conditions of their equality and freedom actually imply a lot of state intervention in the not just the material well-being of people, but preventing their oppression, preventing them from being shamed and discriminated, denied access, say, to restaurants, segregation, all of that stuff. Still on page 316, she is talking about just there are negative and positive aims of egalitarianism. So negatively, people are entitled to whatever capabilities are necessary to enable them to avoid or escape entanglements in oppressive social relationships. Positively, they're entitled to the capabilities necessary for functioning as an equal citizen in a democratic state. So abolish private relations of domination. It's not merely, if we only cared about functioning as an equal citizen, then you have no ammunition to object to, say, forced clitorectomies or things like that. So, you know, as she gets on to the next page, that means that we call for equality across a wide range of capabilities, but that's still not all capabilities, as in the way with luck egalitarians, where we might, you know, if someone really, really wanted to be good at cards and they couldn't be, we might compensate them for that in some way. Or, you know, provide free card-playing lessons to citizens, because that's the only way to ensure the flourishing of those people who want to do that and blah, blah, blah. What we're worried about is not this sort of excess stuff, but the stuff that's necessary for the functioning as an equal citizen. Yeah, it's hard to get a real sense of, she presents these opponents as so bizarre. We don't get a, a charitable, strong as possible, steel man presentation of the other views here. So it's hard to see exactly the motivation behind them. Like, why would you want to argue that society owes beach bums the right to do whatever they want? And so this gets into her positive idea of what the economy is, which I thought was interesting and might say something about the relationship between this project and the new work project that Seth got her to address at the very end of the conversation. And also it makes me think that this minimum, you know, what is required is really going to vary from society to society. I think she says that specifically. I mean, you can't say everybody has a right to an education and adequate nutrition, like if there's just a countrywide famine. We would owe that to each other if we had the capacity to provide it. But because we don't, let's do the best we can. It has to scale to how advanced the society is. So in the same way, like if you assume an economics of scarcity, 
then she describes that, you know, what the economy really is, is kind of us all working together to produce the stuff that we need. Yeah, this is on page 321. Cooperative joint production is her phrase. In deciding principles for a just division of labor and a just division of the fruits of that labor, workers are to regard the economy as a system of cooperative joint production. You know, we're not just self-sufficient Robinson Crusoe's producing everything all by ourselves. I'm paraphrasing there and reading again. By joint production, I mean that people regard every product of the economy as jointly produced by everyone working together. This is kind of what I was trying to get at with the busboy example. What a communist. What a communist. Right, exactly. From the point of view of justice, the attempt, independent of moral principles, to credit specific bits of output to specific bits of input by specific individuals represents an arbitrary cut in the causal web that, in fact, makes everyone's productive contribution dependent on what everyone else is doing. Each worker's capacity to labor depends on a vast array of inputs produced by other people. This concept of input is very important, by the way. Food, schooling, parenting, and the like. It even depends on workers in the recreation and entertainment industry since enjoyment of leisure activities helps restore energy and enthusiasm for work. She's not going to reject market stuff, by the way, as we'll see. So obviously she's not a communist in that sense. But yeah, this is an important <laughs> acknowledgement, and I don't see how anyone could disagree with it. I, I think a lot of people would disagree with it, but she sees herself as interpreting Adam Smith. We talked about Adam Smith's pin factory. Folks go listen to their Wealth of Nations episode. Yeah, the you didn't build that. That's right there in Adam Smith. We need all this stuff. And she points out how Adam Smith thought there should be universal education. She also points out how these other free market people like Thomas Paine apparently was very free market, but wanted there to be universal social insurance. There is a passage, by the way, that famous passage that we talked about in Adam Smith, where he goes into all of this, just how dependent we are on the labor of others using some basic product, you know, all the different steps in the manufacturer process, depending upon all these skills that have been developed over centuries, often that's a real thing in Adam Smith. But go ahead. In the new book, she talks about Smith, you know, she goes through this history. She said, Smith despised selfishness. He disparaged the quest to accumulate vast fortunes, cited the disposition to admire and almost worship the rich and powerful as the great and most universal cause of the corruption of our moral sentiments. So even though in Smithian economics, competition, you know, it's not everybody working together. That's not what this means. There are still competitors and you try to put the other guy out of business. <laughs> you try to gain a larger market share, but still you kind of keep it in perspective. Kind of like, this is my analogy. If you're, playing a high school ball game, you know, you're rooting for your team. You have to do that within the context of realizing what intramural sports are. You know, you don't despise the other team and want them dead. You don't want to smack them so hard that they all quit and drop out of the league. No, it's out of a recognition, you know, the larger perspective of what the economy is, that even competition is good for overall growth, for overall getting people hooked up with the things that they most desire at the cheapest price and, you know, getting people employed, having something to do and feeling meaningful, being able to help each other. That's, I think, what she means by the cooperation. One of the big focuses of this paper is inequality is not the problem. And I think, you know, we talked, for instance, about income inequality today which I think is a real distraction. That's the envy sort of model that she rejects. The problem isn't I'm middle class and there's someone out there super rich that I should envy. 
The problem is that there are people who are impoverished and really suffering, and we are obligated to alleviate that suffering to the point where their dignity and their equality and their freedom is ensured. On her model, yes, in this system of joint production, there will be people who make much more money than others. And she's, you know, for the busboy, for instance, she's asking not for some sort of state set salary, but she is talking about the importance of a minimum wage and the idea that everyone gets at least, you know, enough to fulfill these basic social conditions of freedom. And I think it would surely be the case that the uh, method of getting such a minimum wage would not necessarily even be legislation. I mean, the point is that you need to have the conditions such that that busboy is able to do work so that they have a life that has the appropriate amount of dignity and ability to be free within our civil society. And part of that's going to mean that he needs to make enough money to take care of himself. <laughs> but that doesn't necessarily mean that I need to have a law that legislates minimum wage. It might be. It might be that's the way to solve it. But it might also be that there are other levers in our economy that would ensure that to be the case. And so I don't want to get distracted on the notion of specific ways in which you would do this but that there may be a whole range of incentives within our economy that lead to income inequality that also lead to democratic inequality. So violate those principles that she was talking about. And whatever we say, we're not going to embrace the libertarian claim. Well, you didn't study, and so you ended up as a busboy. That's bullshit. We need busboys. <laughs> and our economy depends on people fulfilling roles at every level. So you don't sacrifice your right to make a living and take care of oneself and have a decent life because you ended up in a certain role. What Dylan M. West just talked about opens up into the number of issues that I had with the private government conversation. But when she traces this genealogy between Smith and Marx, and she describes Smith's assessment of this 100% self-employment and competition is among self-employed people, perhaps with one or two apprentice-type employees who eventually would evolve and start their own practices and how the Industrial Revolution changed the relationship between worker and boss and brought in this notion of capital. So when you talk about we need busboys, right, there's a service economy that needs to exist. And then there's the industrial economy, which she's thinking in terms of manufacturing or agriculture or something along those lines. And Marx does a great job of articulating how the conditions of work in these industrial jobs essentially destroy, degrade, remove the egalitarian treatment of those people as individuals or as human beings. When you talk about something like a busboy or a waiter, which is a different type of hierarchy and power and servitude that's associated with that, but it's not the same thing as an industrial worker. There's a nuance there that I don't think she accounted for, even though it's implicit in her analysis of the difference between the pre-industrial and the post-industrial society. But what her analysis gets right is this idea that, yes, we need to address the conditions of the busboy as a functioning member of society. This is somebody who's willing to work, working, and has a right to participate in the social and economic and political aspects of the society. That makes it sound like it's charity. We're being charitable towards the busboy. But they're also a critical, what she calls, input to the economy. We actually have obligations based on the fact that we are dependent on others economically, including busboys. We are dependent on all these roles that different people play, and we ought to acknowledge that dependence and that we have obligations that flow from that. 
I'm saying we have to acknowledge the dignity of all people who participate at whatever levels, not just in the Kantian sense because the dignity of them and themselves, but also because there's this interconnected web. And even Smith talked about all the various different things that have to go into just the simple putting a piece of food on your plate, you know, the thousands of people that are responsible for making that happen. However, it doesn't follow from that that there's some notion of income equality that makes sense. And on this point in the conversation, she said, how much money do you actually need? If you have a billion dollars, what are you going to do with it? You can't even spend it. Well, what if we'd said that of somebody like Elon Musk? Elon Musk doesn't need all that money pre-Tesla that he got from investing in Facebook or wherever. I can't remember where his money came from. He made a lot of money as a venture capitalist. And with that money, he's not spending it to buy mansions. Like that's such a naive and silly thing to be like, how many houses can you own? He basically turned around and is changing the whole landscape of the economy and of the future direction of technology by investing in the electric car, space travel, all that kind of stuff. Now, whatever you might think of him, that's the deployment of capital in the positive sense that people who are in favor of free markets and capital think that it's going to happen. It's investing in new technologies, it's creating jobs, it's doing all this stuff that capital is supposed to do, not just accumulating it for the sake of spending it on crap. He made his money, by the way, in Zip2. He was the CEO of PayPal. Yeah, but before that, he made $340 million from Zip2 when it was acquired by Compaq. Yes. And then he founded X.com, which ultimately merged with something that became PayPal. Yeah. And now he's grown to calling one of our previous guests for our Dostoevsky episode a chimp on Twitter. <laughs> Corey Moeller. Corey Moeller does post a lot of inflammatory stuff on the web, though. So. so let me read the quote from Elizabeth on page 326. Would democratic equality support a wage-squeezing policy as demanding as Rawls' difference principle? This would forbid all income inequalities that do not improve the incomes of the worst off. In giving absolute priority to the worst off, the difference principle might require considerable sacrifices in the lower middle ranks for trifling gains at the lowest levels. Democratic equality would urge a less demanding form of reciprocity. Once all citizens enjoy a decent set of freedoms, sufficient for functioning as equals in society, income inequalities beyond that point do not seem so troubling in themselves. The degree of acceptable income inequality would depend in part on how easy it was to convert income into status inequality. Differences in the social bases of self-respect, influence over elections, and the like. The stronger the barriers against commodifying social status, political influence, and the like, the more acceptable are significant income inequalities. The moral status of free market allocations is strengthened, the more carefully defined is the domain in which these allocations have free reign. So there you go. She's open to fairly unfettered capitalism so far as this minimum requirement is met for everybody, but... We got to watch out for the evils of the corruptibility of the system for money and all that kind of stuff. So this should be a incentive for the rich people to want campaign finance reform, which really should just be a matter of uniform de-escalation. Do we allow unrestricted advertising everywhere? Well, if we do, then everybody that wants to advertise, that wants to get the word out, has to spend more and more and more and more. If you, as a society, say, no, we're only going to allow billboards in certain places, and then it becomes less of a money pit. You can still get your message out without completely going bankrupt. This should be what rich people feel like about the political system. Like, I don't want to have to give $14 million to achieve a desired political outcome just because the other guy will do it if I don't. If we just take out the money from everybody, then the rich people can still find ways to influence, but they won't be that much poorer. 
Yeah, and after she goes through this lengthy criticism of luck egalitarianism and egalitarianism as redistribution of goods, the idea that you would impose an arbitrary limit on how much money somebody can have or how much money somebody can have in relation to somebody else feels a lot like that form of distribution of goods. It doesn't feel the same way as the point she was trying to make about access to participation in society. And the question of obligation. I've been thinking a little bit about what is it that's really, really different? Is there something to point at that's different in talking about obligation? And I guess it's in part not considering individuals as free particles, as fundamentally individuals that happen to be interacting with one another. It's really understanding us as fundamentally social animals and that the rules of those interactions have a lot to do with this conversation we're having about what our obligations are to one another. That our own individual concerns, things like our individual freedom and our individual ability to flourish, are deeply intertwined and dependent upon the way in which we're interacting with others. And therefore, the rules that we have for that, say in terms of laws and the things that are a little bit less than rules, but still require being attentive to moral obligations, are part of that. You use the phrase, Dylan, ability to flourish, and I wanted to emphasize that because it's on 329 where we get her claim that we're not obligated to fulfill people's conceptions of the good or ensure their happiness. Before that, there's a long section, and we might want to talk about whether her views, if implemented, would allow people to be irresponsible, and it doesn't seem to punish irresponsibility, and she has a response to that. But in this case, she's responding to an objection where her point of view seems to violate a requirement of liberal neutrality among conceptions of the good, which is basically Sandel's critique of Rawls. The idea that this stuff all amounts to a conception of the good that's being imposed let me just read the paragraph here. So she says, These objections fail to appreciate the distinction between what people want and what other people are obligated to give them. The basic duty of citizens acting through the state is not to make everyone happy, but to secure the conditions of everyone's freedom. In securing for citizens only the capabilities they need to function as equal citizens, the state is not declaring that these capabilities are more important for individual happiness than some others that they might prefer. It leaves individuals free to decide for themselves how useful or important are the goods that the state guarantees them. It guarantees certain capabilities to citizens not because these are the most important ones as judged from the standpoint of the best conception of the good, but because these are the ones citizens are obligated to provide one another in common. And she'll go on to say, this is on page 330, and this is really important, I think, because this constitutes a reply to Sandel as well. This objection misunderstands the point of neutrality. As Rawls has stressed, given the fact that people hold conflicting conceptions of the good, liberal states need some basis for judging claims of justice that does not rest on partisan views of the good. The point of view of citizens acting collectively, the political point of view, does not claim authority in virtue of promoting the objectively best or most important goods, but in virtue of being a possible object of collective willing. Neutral goods are the goods we can reasonably agree to collectively provide, given the fact of pluralism. Thus, the capability citizens need to function as equals in civil society count as neutral goods for purposes of justice, but not because everyone finds these capabilities equally valuable, but because reasonable people can recognize that these form a legitimate basis for making moral claims on one another. This also sounds very Kantian, right? What are the conditions of collective willing? What are the conditions of making any moral claims on one another at all? 
the argument here is that this is not just one more particular conception of the good that the state is trying to impose. This is something that's fundamental to having any conception of the good at all, of one sort or another. I don't know what you guys think of that. Well, I'm still a little creeped out by the moralism inherent in the idea of seeing the economy as a cooperative production. That quote that it even depends on workers in the recreation and entertainment industries since enjoyment of leisure activities helps restore energy and enthusiasm for work. And I think back to the Society of the Spectacle book that we read, <laughs> which was pointing at exactly this thing. And she's capitalist enough that she's embracing this. So this is why I want to read the article that she was objecting to by Van Parijas, Van P-A-R-I-J-S about Contrary to Van Prejus's view, citizens do not owe one another the real freedom to function as beach bums. And so this was kind of the whole point of the new work stuff back to Thoreau. Thoreau seemed to think that unless most of your time is yours to do with as you please, you are not actually free. And she does not seem troubled by this. So the way that I can reconcile those is, again, to say, look, following the quote you most recently read, West, that what reasonable people will agree on will depend on the overall development of the society. So how much does the machine of the economy need to churn in order for everybody's basic needs to be met? Like if we've automated 90% of the work and Amazon and a few other giant companies are churning out most of what we need such that people still might want jobs and she's in favor of that, thinks that's part of asserting your autonomy. It still might be good for people, but at a certain point, it seems like the government would have to start being neutral in the Rawlsian liberal way between do you want to work? Do you want to not work? What do you actually think is the point of life? The government shouldn't be saying the point of life is to work. And even if you're working in the entertainment industry, the only reason that's valuable is because it helps the other workers to do their jobs and produce the food that we need. Mark, do you want to be a beach bum? Is what you're trying to say? <laughs> I think maybe a lot of creative work. Just a podcaster. <laughs> just is done on the beach that unless you had the freedom to think Elon Musk had enough money that he could dream about what he wanted to accomplish. And the fact that he had so much money meant the sky, literally, <laughs> is the limit. <laughs> sky was not the limit, actually, Mark. <laughs> Mars, I think, is the current limit. Yes. So what should be the limit of people's choices, I think, is a matter of reasonable ongoing negotiation. Well, part of this comes down to the kind of moralizing that we do about the way people use their time, and the choices that people make. So it gets couched in saying, well, because you're not working, you're not doing morally worthwhile activity in the sense that you're not working at a job making some money, right? And that makes it so you're not doing a worthwhile activity. She said something at the end of the podcast about her next work, which is, sounds directly related to this, how the Puritan work ethic has, over a few hundred years, infected this moralizing about the way in which we spend our time. Yeah, of course, there's the dumb, get a job, you hippie, because of course, there are so many jobs, you know, working for a telemarketing company that the people working at those jobs feel like they're accomplishing nothing. It is a meaningless waste of time. This is not helping the economy. Unlike the busboys, we don't need them. I think she'd be very much in favor of, it's not just having a job, it's actually contributing and feeling like you're actually contributing to the world. It might be specifically beach bums are being purely selfish. Although really, are they surfing? Are they providing entertainment? <laughs> That doesn't sound like the point at all about saying that having a hierarchy of the kind of work that says, oh, you're actually contributing or you're not actually contributing, right? The idea is that everybody's interconnected in the economy. She's going to say even the hedge fund managers are contributing. 
they get paid more, so they must be contributing, in fact, more. That's the market value. She's going to reject that, but can we not leave it open that she might just say, look, this financial sector, some of what they do is sheerly a waste of resources and effort, and it's entirely reversed the status associated. Not that there should be, if you're an egalitarian, status should not be that you're a waste of space or you're a productive member of society based on your profession, but you could still point at particular jobs and say these are more or less helpful for the whole. Yeah, but she never says it's illegitimate to be a beach bum. She's just saying that we don't have to require society to support that. And she does say even a criminal is still entitled to basic human functioning, such as adequate nutrition, shelter, and medical care, and presumably so would a beach bum. I think there'd be enough of a safety net under this idea that maybe there would be a minimum income or something, but you'd be able to survive and support yourself even as a beach bum. It's just that you're not going to be a wealthy beach bum or achieve any of your other dreams and society's not going to do that for you. Right. Page 321, right after that, most able-bodied citizens then will get access to the divisible resources they need to function by earning a wage or some equivalent compensation due to them on account of their fulfilling some role in division of labor. I guess if that's purely descriptive, like most people will do that, but it does sound like if you're able to work and you choose not to work, then you do not get the minimum income. She's clear that we don't let anyone die. We don't let anyone fall into de facto servitude or anything that undermines the social conditions of their freedom. And I think that would go for someone who is just determined to be a beach bum. They're not allowed to live in squalor and therefore die of some unspeakable disease because of that. Or compulsive gambler. She does talk about one point about homelessness being a condition of profound unfreedom which raises, I think, some problems because there are a lot of homeless people who have chosen that way of life, who I think would actually prefer that, or at least some homeless people who would actually prefer that way of life. If she's calling it a condition of profound unfreedom, is she suggesting that it must be remedied? She rejects the idea that we can sell ourselves into slavery, but are we going to be allowed to live in a condition of profound unfreedom if it's something like homelessness? It's unclear. If I let that comment go, we're going to get so much shit on the internet. How dare you say that people choose homelessness? I certainly don't know anyone who've chosen homelessness nor read any portraits of homelessness that really depict it as a truly free choice. I think we should probably not waste time arguing over that. But Well, I work with people who've been homeless. You can call it not a choice in the sense that there's a lot of homeless people who are mentally ill and do the choices you make and the state of mental illness, does that constitute a choice? That becomes a very complex question. But I think as politically incorrect as it might seem, I don't think anyone who knows a great deal about homelessness would say that it's the case that there aren't a lot of people who have chosen to do that. Chosen in quotation marks. Can I raise a last issue? It's just a relationship between the economic and the cultural, right? This came up in our white privilege episode, and I think was front and center here, that it's not merely, and it's not even primarily a matter of equality of income, of distribution of resources, but it's a matter of respect. And so ultimately, we need to remake the culture somehow so that it is more egalitarian, right? If any culture is ready to do that, it should be America. Even though we don't have feudalism, we don't have ancient landed families and an aristocracy, but I think there still is lurking in our cultural DNA something like, I want to go out there and be somebody. Like that to be somebody is to succeed in your profession. This is what makes it so that we can't imagine that the busboy is somebody in fully the sense of everybody else. How do we even make changes like that? I guess we could just talk about this and write books. Uh, <laughs> yeah. She does bring up a case. So, Margaret, I think what you're pointing to is really important because no matter how much redistribution we're doing, 
it seems like we can't conceivably provide people with status. That's just going to be determined by social norms and whatever minimums we're providing to people, tremendous respect in the community for one's achievements. That simply can't be doled out. And the same thing goes with love. I mean, I think it's really relevant to this whole debate about incels recently. The larger point is that for people who are, call them losers, call them whatever you want, but for people who are on the losing end socially, we can't really do anything about that. We couldn't provide them with love without violating other people's rights. That's just not something that we can distribute to them. She does bring up a relevant case, which is that of ugliness. For the luck egalitarians, they suggest that society owes them plastic surgery to make them less ugly. She finds that on its face kind of demeaning and basically says what we should really do is, in this case and in many other similar cases, is change society's norms. Not to eliminate beauty standards. She's not that kind of egalitarian where we have to pretend that some people aren't more beautiful than others. But to make it so it's not the case that you can look a certain way that's going to mean that you're going to be shamed or excluded from society or have one's social conditions of freedom basically violated in any other way. And then she goes on to say, but realistically, it's really, really hard to change norms. And it's not the government's job. And it's going to have to be up to basically activism and nonprofit organizations and things like that. And even then, is it really doable? Maybe not. So maybe plastic surgery really is the way to go in the end. But preferably, the whole point, though, is it's not really ugliness. That's the problem. It's those who would treat that as a reason for exclusion in some fundamental sense. But still, none of that addresses your question, Mark, which is that some people are so constituted that they may end up getting the minimums in this society, but they're not going to get anything extra. They're not going to fulfill their dreams. They may not even get love. This ugliness example made me think of that film Wonder. Yeah, a little boy that was born with a birth defect has had lots of plastic surgery, but still is being introduced to a public school for the first time and just scares the bejesus out of most of the little kids. So it's mostly about how the culture there changes so that they can accept him. On the other hand, if he hadn't had those surgeries in the first place, it would have been way worse. The answer in that case is both. Yes, we do owe such people, just like you owe ramps to the handicapped. If somebody's a burn victim or whatever, like, yeah, we really should have a social safety net that covers that and not just say, oh, everybody should just be okay with people looking different. But it's a mix of things. Tolerance would be nice, yes, for whatever kind of thing is going on, but it might not be within human nature for certain I don't know. I shouldn't say that. Yeah, people can get used to anything. We're thrown off by seeing somebody with less than the normal number of body parts, but you can get used to that and treat them like a human being pretty easily. But Mark, just to get back to your point, equality and freedom are not all that much compared to what we want, compared to our flourishing, right? We can flourish qua citizens with that. It is a big deal in the sense of avoiding oppression and having, like she said, access basically having the opportunity, right, to pursue our functionings. But it doesn't guarantee our functionings. It doesn't guarantee status, accomplishment, love, sex. Presumably, there's still going to be a lot of people who are profoundly unhappy with all of this. It's not a kind of utopia. And I think this gets at some of the unspoken stuff about what might motivate the luck egalitarian people, which is, don't we want to do something to help make sure that everyone actually flourishes in the sense of achieving their dreams, being happy, all of that stuff. And it begins to sound harsh again. It begins to sound more libertarian, like there are going to be real losers in this society, and that's too bad. And part of that response is, and maybe I'm just restating, how much of our flourishing for those who are flourishing is dependent on luck. Mm -hmm. 
It's profoundly dependent on luck, luck of having talents, where and when you were born. So I'm also concerned that this focus on status instead of distribution might gloss over morally important inequalities. Actually, this should be something that the very rich <laughs> will sign on to. Like, yes, I will absolutely treat all the busboys as full equals. I don't need to pretend that the waiters and the busboys are servants in the manner of an old-time English lord. I will treat them as full human beings, and in fact, we'll restructure their jobs. I was thinking more like Panera or somewhere. We're like, everybody's just an associate. I don't really know. I don't work at Panera. But it seems like it's the same people who make the food and who go pick stuff up and who bring stuff. There's not a strong hierarchy. If you care about making workplaces enjoyable, you could worry about that. And so everybody feels in their job like they're doing something valuable. But you could say, yeah, I'll be happy to speak to all the peasants very respectfully. As long as they still get to remain peasants and I still get to remain rich. Nobody so, was worried about that. <laughs> Go ahead, Seth. We've spent a lot more time talking about the paper than we did about the private government thing. But this is kind of what I was trying to get at. I was trying to be questioning and critical and get her to engage on this topic, but she didn't. It's that when she was talking in vague generalizations about, oh, you know, the private government, right? Employers can dictate behaviors backed up by punitive measures to... There's a lot of interesting stuff to be said there, but the paradigm she seemed to have in mind was something like, okay, we have a large corporation that requires a lot of minions to do unskilled work at the bottom, like a chicken processing plant, right? And the CEO is like the president or the king of this little fiefdom. And there's this strict hierarchical thing where everybody has power over those underneath them. And they can order you to do basically anything. And if you don't do it, you'll get fired. And whether or not you have the ability, power as an employee to have mobility is what other jobs are available in the town and whether you can move and whether you're educated and all that. And I've heard this from other academics before, the description of the way that businesses work or corporations or whatever, it may very well be that that exists, but it's not a blanket description that you can apply across the board. I wanted her to make a point about my experience that I thought it was different, but it wasn't, or it actually is different. But the environments I work in are much more collaborative. HR exists to make sure that companies don't get sued. That's true. And I have a lot of mobility because of my skill set, which is related to my good fortune of being born into a family that allowed me to get an education and be well-fed and that sort of thing. But it's a misrepresentation of the way roles exist in complex organizations to characterize it as private government in the strictest sense that she did. And I think another challenging and complicating factor is when you think about the rise of the gig economy or on-demand economy. So Uber is not an employer, but if the people who drive for Uber were employees, it would be one of the biggest companies in the world right now. Uber exerts very little direct influence over the drivers other than to qualify them. And it uses a social system, meaning ratings of passengers and things like that, to control the behaviors in a sense. There's an incentive to behave well and to do work well and to drive a certain amount every week and to not turn down rides, things like that. And maybe there's more going on there than I know. But the point is, Uber's not strictly speaking an employer, but many people are working through Uber and making money and through other types of gig economy type things like Favor, DoorDash, or whatever they happen to be. So I ask you, when we talk about this paradigm, 
And by the way, the only skill you have to have is the ability to drive, which I think, at least in our developed world, even low-skilled people with no skills or low skills typically are assumed to be able to drive or at least have public transportation to get to their jobs. But in places where they can drive, there's a whole world of jobs which are similar to being a busboy or a waiter, that same level of dignity and all that kind of stuff, but they don't have an employer. And I just think it's a fascinating topic and it's much more rich and complex, but it felt to me like she wasn't interested in exploring that complexity. And in fact, at the end, when she said, oh, I'm onto my new book or whatever, I had a very interesting conversation with my parents about this topic after on Friday morning at breakfast because it's so rich and interesting a topic, but it's nuanced in ways that I felt like she didn't want to address or acknowledge. One of the objectors pointed out the difference between working in a factory, making garments, and somebody hovering over you, whipping you. And the exact same work historically took place in women's homes, where you still had to keep that level breakneck speed in order to break even because it was such low-paying work per output. And so that's kind of the equivalent of Uber that Kaladni was saying, like, isn't it just as bad to be in the Uber situation? And I think her response was, yeah, that can be terrible. Of course, we should work to improve the dignity of jobs such that they don't have that kind of strain involved. But it does make things, she thinks, measurably worse to have someone actually standing there needling you to not have the basic autonomy. So it's like, how mean are the prison guards? <laughs> to be in prison is bad, is a restriction on freedom. But if you have a prison guard that is micromanaging you, that would make it so much worse. But that can be articulated in terms of dignity, and you could probably find a way to talk about the effective participation. Because, of course, part of the effective participation in a society is going to depend on the society's ability to govern and remove and punish those who prevent others from being effective participants in whatever way, shape, or form that is. Then you're going to have a universe of discourse around what is the effective participation in the punitive system look like and how do we respect the dignity of the person while simultaneously preventing them from impacting other people's ability to fully manifest whatever opportunities or possibilities are open to them. And so I think there's a language there that you could use. The point I was just trying to make is it felt like a traditional view of labor like a Marxian view of how labor functions in an industrial capitalist society. And what's happening right now in the overall economy is things are changing pretty rapidly and new paradigms and models are coming up. Now, it may very well be that workers will always get the shaft <laughs> or will always be lesser than and always have this notion of hierarchy. But it certainly feels to me like there are paradigms emerging that are challenging that. Yeah, I discussed this with my family as well. And hearing the idea that, as she says, the theory of the firm says it's just most efficient to not have workplace democracy. You just have to have a boss that has some flexibility in how to allocate your work. So you just can't have unlimited choice in what you want to work on when. Most jobs, you'd not be able to create the product if you actually did that. You have to add negotiating costs, is the way she puts it, to every step of the work. And then it really slows it down. Remember, there was the multiple types of hierarchy that you could have your interests respected, even though you don't get to make the decisions. So just as a practical matter, somebody has to be the coordinator in any given situation, but that doesn't necessarily have to translate into lower status. And I feel like the small company that I belong to is a great example of that, that, you know, there are definitely managers and people who have to do what they're told, but there's just a strong respect for everybody as an individual. And it's not the constant, I'm just going to keep you at 60 hours of work at all times because I'm too cheap to hire some additional person. Like if you just say, I'm just not going to work any more hours that. 
you can do that. <laughs> That's just the nature of the particular by the hour contractual work that I happen to be involved in. I don't actually want to write any more of that kind of product. Sorry, I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, you could get fired for that, but if you're providing value in other ways, you don't. They try to accommodate, but still the boss can just have a bad day and just be mean. And I think that's again, why we don't feel that maybe this is as much of a problem as it is. But I think most jobs, yeah, it really is just a matter of how much an asshole the boss is. <laughs> Since the workplace constitution doesn't formally give most people that many rights, then it's just the luck of the draw. I felt at various jobs, it's not even just the boss, but like who my coworkers happen to be. Is there going to be that person who rides my ass all the time? <laughs> or am I going to be more or less free to do the work the way that I see fit? We're both talking in terms of upper level jobs. That's our general response is that these things don't have a lot of relevance to bus boys and factory workers and the many other things of that sort. Next time is the big episode 200. Our primary reading is going to be Kant's very short 1784 essay, What is Enlightenment? So that was published in a newspaper because uh, there was a solicitation for essays on that. And we're going to read one of the others from that batch published in the same place, Moses Mendelssohn's On Enlightening the Mind. And then years later, 1984, Michel Foucault published a response to Kant, also called What is Enlightenment? So we'll read that as well. Folks, you please go to partiallyexaminedlife.com. Let us know what you thought about this topic, this type of topic. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, etc., etc. Our closing song today is Straight Job by Rod Picot, a very literary songwriter dealing with working class issues. Please listen to my interview with him on Nakedly Examined Music, episode 80 at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I also want to announce the addition of a new podcast to the Partially Examined Life podcast network that is Constellary Tales, and their first episode is actually on the short story I referred to in the discussion of egalitarianism, Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. It is a science fiction podcast featuring Ken Gerber, who drew the Partially Examined Life and Nakedly Examined Music logos, and his brother, whose name is Brian Hurt, who is my best friend going back to junior high. I had actually asked Brian to be a host of PEL before I decided it was going to be strictly a philosophy podcast in the first place. So at my urging, they have finally gotten it together. So they have some good chemistry. You want to check that out. You can get their episodes at partiallyexaminedlife.com or go directly to constellary.com. Wes's work is also continuing on the subtext podcast. He still is not committed to giving it its own feed, giving it its own page, making it a fully separate podcast. So his episode four on Freud is available right now for Partially Examined Life Citizens and $5 Patreon members. So long, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Molly's been sick last couple of weeks She ain't sleeping so good She can't eat And I know what's coming Though we ain't talk I know what she's thinking It's time to punch the clock I gotta get a street job There's a kid on the way I used to be the wild one Now I gotta get paid I need steady work I need a union car I need 
time I gotta get a straight job Now I don't really mind If it's pink or it's blue I go down to the hardware store For the pink when the baby is due I gotta tell the caster Gotta go home 